0: Some of you may know the the name Henrik Ibsen from high school English class. Uh, I remember reading uh, A Doll's House, probably his most famous play, uh, probably in grade 10 English. And uh, yet I didn't read uh, another play of his by the name of The Wild Duck. Um, But if you haven't heard that play, uh, you may have heard a line from that play by which Uh, probably one of the most famous lines that Henrik Gibson is known for. Uh, There's a, a doctor named Relling who gives this famous line, if you take the life lie from an average man, you take away his happiness as well. If you take away the life lie from an average man, you take away his happiness as well. And what he's trying to express is the idea that we tell ourselves things that aren't true to help protect us from realities that are otherwise too painful for us to deal with. There are things in your life, in my life, that, that we hold on to, we, we try to, to, to hold them in our heart because they protect us from, from painful and difficult truths. Uh, For instance, uh, a teenager might say, my life is lousy, but as soon as I move out, then I'll be happy. A a single person might say, I don't enjoy my life very much, but it'll be different as soon as I meet the right person. A A married person might say, my life is just not 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 happy. I don't I don't have contentment, but it's because of my spouse. Some someone might say, if I just got enough money together to buy this, then it would all come together. Then I would finally be happy. Then I would be content. Or or maybe someone else would say, if God would only heal me of this thing, whatever that thing might be, then, then I could finally be at rest. Then I could have peace and contentment in my heart. Those those statements aren't true. The statements aren't true, but we want to hold on and believe that they're true because they protect us from the more difficult reality That if they're not true, and if we recognize they're not true, then they force us to deal with the fact that maybe we don't know where contentment comes from. Maybe we don't know where peace really is. And if we don't know where peace is, that makes our lives even more uncomfortable than believing something that, when we're honest with ourselves, we know isn't true, but will protect us from dealing with something that's otherwise more difficult. What we, find our, what we find happening in our culture is we find people who get the kind of things that we think if we got them, then we'd be happy. We see lots of people getting those things and it doesn't seem to work. We keep getting surprised when we hear about celebrity su- suicides and we say stupid things like, I can't understand why they did that. They had everything. Why would they throw it away? And when we say foolish things like that, we're telling ourselves that lie that if only we had everything, then we would be perfectly happy. And yet, again, that's one of the life lies that we would cling to and we would cling to it in foolishness. This morning, I want you to consider some of the life lies that you might be holding on to some of the things that you might hold to be true, but when put up against Scripture, you would have to say, those are some things that I need to reject. Those are some things that I've been holding in my heart as true, and really they're false, and I need to put aside. I need to discard them. We're looking at a passage this morning that talks about the secret of contentment. Talks to us about where to find contentment, and how we can experience it. And so I want to I encourage you to examine your heart for what some of the life lies might be that you're clinging to, and allow yourself to enter into what this, the scriptures reveal to be the secret of contentment. Uh, I often say, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to, and we're going to turn to chapter Philippians chapter 4. I, I, I would... I would go so far as to say, if you don't have your Bible with you today, could I encourage you to bring one next week? Uh, Download one for your phone, go old school with a paper copy. But the things that we talk about on a Sunday morning are too important for you to take my word for it. Uh, I want you to see them in the scriptures for yourselves. And and, uh, and, and that's important enough that I just want to encourage you in that. Uh, Today, I'm going to be reading from Philippians chapter 4, and uh, we'll just have this short section from verses 10 down to verse 13. Philippians 4, verses 10 to 13. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you've revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is the word of God. Now let's start into this passage with the challenge of learning to be content with little. Because everything in our culture teaches us that we have to have more. We need more. We deserve more. And the promise is that when, if we only get more, then we'll be happy. But the scriptures reveal that to be a life lie. And the challenge this morning is that we can learn to be content with little. Now in verse 10, Paul is expressing gratitude to the church in Philippi. They had given him a, a gift and... Paul, as as you may recall if you've been with us, he is under house arrest right now. He is chained 24-7 to an imperial guard. And so he can't go out to work. He can't uh, provide for himself the way he otherwise would. He is at the mercy of people who would uh, support and provide for him. And so the church in Philippi, recognizing his need, heard about his need, and they reached out and uh, provided for him. And so he wants to tell them how thankful he is, how grateful he is for the gift. But as soon as that's come out of his lips, he is careful to avoid any misunderstanding. He doesn't want them to think that before he got the the gift from them, he was miserable. Or that somehow his life was uh, less than complete. So in verse 11, he says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. The gift that they sent to him was appreciated. He enjoyed it. He was was grateful for it. But he wanted them to know that the gift didn't fundamentally change his sense of uh, contentment. He wants them to see that contentment is possible regardless of the circumstance. Then he goes on to spell more of what that means in verse 12. He starts by saying... I know how to be brought low. Now in saying he knows how to be brought low, he's talking about being humbled, being brought down in his circumstances. And, and, and being humbled in first century Rome was a big deal. Rome was all about glory. It was about honor. It was about status and position. And Paul had grown up enjoying a, a measure of that, but he had come to experience what it was like to be, to be brought down. He had, come to, he had come to see that he could be misunderstood, he could be looked down upon, he could be treated as second class, and yet even in the midst of that kind of circumstance, he could enjoy peace in his heart and a sense of contentment. He shows us a little bit about what he's talking about in 1 Corinthians 4. There he says, "'We hunger and thirst,' We're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Paul had grown up in privilege. Uh, He was a Roman citizen, and that gave him a certain status and privilege in in Roman society. Uh, He was something of an intellectual, elite education. He was a very gifted man. And yet he also knew what it was like to have all of that stripped away from him. When he talks about being treated like uh, the refuse of all things, I'm pretty confident that the language there in the original Greek is a little more colorful than the refuse of all things. It it carried a little bit more uh, punch to it. He knew what it was like to be treated like what he calls the scum of the world. He, he, could, be, he could be looked down upon. He could be disrespected. And, and it wasn't as if he is promoting... Uh, this kind of, of disrespect. It's not an advertisement that, that abuse is fine. And, and it, he, he's not lifting those things up. All he's doing is saying that if you find yourself not receiving the kind of affirmation that the world says you ought to have, you got to have in order to enjoy a sense of peace, and wholeness, and contentment, he's saying it's not there. All of that can be taken away and you can can still enjoy a rest in your heart, a peace because of Christ. Paul didn't just though learn to be content with emotional hardship. He also had to deal with material trials as well. If you look again at verse 12, he talks of his contentment in the face of both hunger and need. He had had faced uh, profound needs in his own life and that meant sometimes going hungry. I have to admit, I was reading this passage, studying this passage this week, and I got a call from a high school friend of mine. We grew up in the same area, and he he just said, "I, I went to an Italian restaurant right near um, right right near where we both grew up. And he told me about this Italian restaurant, and he said, You wouldn't believe the food there. It is incredible. And in fact, the signature dish for this Italian restaurant, was a 24-inch slice of pizza. Like one slice of pizza, two feet long, covered in pepperonis and cheese. And he's describing this thing to me, and I'm thinking, that just sounds so good. I love pizza. (laughs) And honestly, before the phone call, I was kind of looking forward to my kale and chicken salad. (laughs) And I get off this call, and I'm like, that's all I can think of. But I've, I've been studying this passage and I'm thinking, if I can't even be content without a two-foot piece of <laughs> slice of pizza, like what hope is there for, you know, in, in hunger and need and, and all of these other things. And so I I repented of my discontent over not having pizza, and I thanked God for my kale salad. But it, it just was a reminder to me, that's the world we live in constantly being sent messages, you have to have more. You need to have more. And the reason that your life is so miserable is that you don't have a 24-inch slice of pizza. Like it, it, it is that message that we are constantly sent. And the Bible says that message is a life lie, and we need to reject it. We need to identify it first, see it coming, and once we see it, we need to give it, the door, and to uh, put it up in the the test of what Scripture would give us. Now, the early church seemed to have learned this lesson, and so they were marked by a profoundly different attitude towards their stuff, their possessions. Paul describes, for instance, the churches of Macedonia in 2 Corinthians 8.2. He says, in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. And I think we read that verse in the North American church and it sounds like gibberish to us. It just, it doesn't make sense. How can you put severe test of affliction and abundance of joy in the same sentence? We don't get that. How can you have extreme poverty but also a wealth of generosity? It, it doesn't compute for us. And it doesn't compute for us because often it, we haven't learned the, the, what the Bible will regularly affirm to us that we can have contentment regardless of the circumstances. It, it's something that we struggle so much to believe because everything around us is telling us the opposite message. But the scripture reveals that as a lifeline. And until we learn this lesson from Scripture, contentment will always elude us. It will always be around the corner. When we've got something bigger, something more, something different, and the Bible says, no, you can have that contentment where you are right now in your present circumstances. Until we learn that lesson, we won't trust God enough to to tithe and give generously. Until we learn this lesson as a church, we will probably continue to talk about a building program that everybody uh, would, has, has talked about for years and would love to have, but not make the sacrifices to see it happen. The Bible says that we can have contentment in little. That our peace and the rest in our heart doesn't rest in our circumstances. So we've talked about learning to be content with little. And maybe so far, you've, the message seems vaguely familiar. It's the kind of thing that you might expect to hear on Sunday morning. But Paul doesn't leave the message there. The scripture goes farther. And he confronts us with the challenge of learning to be content with much. That sounds really easy for, for most of us until we remember, like, for instance, with King David. It was only when King David got everything that he wanted that his life began to fall apart, right? Like, when he was in need and desperation and terrible trials and circumstances, like, David was shining example of faith and purity and and devotion. And when he got everything he wanted, couldn't handle it. So much of of his, his life began to implode from the inside. And so the the scripture challenges us to learn to be content with much. Now, when I first read verse 11 to you, some of you, and maybe most of you, thought Paul's probably talking about great need. But Paul says, I've learned in whatever situation I'm to be content, and that whatever situation included some high points in his life as well. For example, in verse 12, Paul says, I know how to abound. He'd, he'd learned how to be brought low, but he'd also knew what it was like to be lifted up. And again, some of you are thinking, I don't need to learn any lessons about that. That's easy. I, I, could, I could do that without any, any extra advice from, from God or the Bible. Learning contentment when you're treated like dirt, that's hard. But learning contentment when you're treated like a star... That's not easy either. When people begin to praise and promote you, you can start thinking you really are amazing. You really are something special. You can start looking down on other people who haven't accomplished as much as you have. It can begin to affect your sense of worth and identity and pride and your attitude towards people around you. Or you can experience what many people feel and experience it, the sense of, of maybe being promoted into this position and having a lot of people uh, affirm what you can do, and you feel like a fraud inside. You feel like, if only everyone knew that I'm just kind of making this up as I go along. And, and if you are clinging too tightly to that sense of being lifted up, tre- being treated like a star, that can just eat, up, eat you up inside with a sense of anxiety. Like, what if it's taken away? What if, what if I'm discovered? What if people see that I'm, I'm not all that they think that I am? Or there can be an isolation and loneliness that comes with having arrived. Relationships can become more difficult. People begin to see you in different ways. For instance, uh, Stranger Things star, Winona Ryder, she described her her early struggles with success in her life. She said, when I was 18, I was driving around at 2 in the morning, completely crying and alone and scared, and I drove by this magazine stand with a cover of Rolling Stone on it, and I was on the cover of that magazine. And it said, Winona Ryder, the luckiest girl in the world. And there I was, feeling more alone than I ever had luckiest girl in the world. And yet, in having reached all that she had ever dreamed of, she realized the dream's empty. Contentment isn't there. She thought, as just if I could only land this movie contract, then maybe I'll feel full. It didn't fill her. In fact, having confronted the life lie and realized firsthand experience, it's a lie, Su- contentment isn't there, success can't purchase it, having confronted that life lie, it undid her. And she was left feeling empty and alone. If we don't learn to be content, we, we become desperate. And we can do, and people do, those self-destructive things that we often hear about. But again, the challenge also relates to material abundance. Uh, Many people aren't prepared for the challenge of contentment when all of their needs are finally met. In in verse 12, Paul says, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and abundance. Paul, as we've we've already learned, he, he faced some hardship. He faced days when he went hungry. But he never took a vow of perpetual poverty. Uh, he, He was someone who often went hungry, but he'd also had some good meals in his day as well. And he didn't say that was evil. There wasn't anything wrong with that. The challenge is to have enough money to meet all your needs without it letting it define you. Without it becoming your sense of hope and security and joy and somewhere along the line, becoming like your God. And yet that's so often the path that people will take. Most people think that if all their needs were met, then they would really be generous and giving and God-glorifying with all of the resources that God gave them. And yet the Bible says it doesn't work that way. You're faithful in little, you'll be faithful in much. If you think that it would be like, Wow, it'd be a piece of cake if I if I had all of my needs met, then I would really be knocking it out of the out of the park and being generous and I'd give to God and I'd give to people in need and I would if you think that that's easy, it's it's not by the way. <laughs> but if you think it's easy, think of the last time that you came to the end of the month and you had an extra 100 bucks. Chances are if you didn't look at that $100 and use it in such a way that glorified God and blessed others, then chances are if you came to the end of the month and you had an extra 1000 or an extra 10000 chances are you wouldn't use that money in any more God-glorifying way than you did with 100 The challenge to be content with much is, is a real challenge. The challenge of learning contentment when all our needs are met is expressed in Hebrews 13.5. It talks there about the love of money. It says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The thing is, when the money starts to come in, we can fall in love with that money. We can begin to look to it for our happiness and our security. We can look to it for our identity and our sense of worth. And the Bible says that is a love affair that will end in disappointment. It is a love affair that is ultimately empty and it will leave us feeling empty when we pursue it. We need to keep our life free from the love of money and to be content with what we have. That means taking our financial wants and keeping them within our financial means. Rejecting the lie that happiness is around the corner when I just get more, because more never comes. There's always another more around the next corner. Now, so far we said we've learned to be, we need to learn to be content with little or much. Haven't given a lot of, haven't given out any secrets yet, have I? I haven't uh, uh, revealed from the scripture how you actually do that. And we're going to get there in Philippians, but first I want to want you to see the hint of it here in Hebrews thirteen five. It commands that we keep free from the love of money and be content with what we have, first half of the verse. And then in the second half of the verse, it promises that God will never leave us nor forsake us. But what's the connection between the first half and the second half? Right in the middle, there's that little word for, right? And so it shows that the second half of the verse is the basis or the means by which we can enter into the first half of the verse. The second half makes the first half possible. The idea is that because God is with us, we can be content. Because God is for us, we can rest in his provision. Because God is faithful, we don't need to put our hope in money. Because God is good, because God is great, we don't need to find our security in our stuff and particularly in more stuff. The goodness of the God who is for us makes contentment possible. And that's, that's, that's a hint and a foreshadowing of the secret of contentment that Paul will reveal in this passage. But let's go there now. Let's look at how our passage in Philippians develops this secret of contentment and see how it teaches us to learn contentment through Christ's enabling. We can learn contentment through price-enabling, whether we have little or much. Now, as a backdrop to what this passage is saying, I need to revisit a a verse that and, and just point out something that may not have been obvious in our first reading. In verse 11, when Paul said, I've learned in whatever situation I'm to be content. When he said that word content, he used a buzzword from the first century. That word contentment was something that philosophers were constantly talking about. They were lifting it up as the goal, as the ideal, as something that people should seek. They were known as the Stoics. And, and from them, we get the word Stoicism. Or he's, he's really Stoic, meaning, boy, that person really sucks it up and, and uh, uh, pushes down their, their desires. So when Paul says, I'm to be content and he's learned to be content, people would think, oh, I know what Paul's talking. He's talking about that thing that the philosophers are always talking about, contentment. That you've got to ignore your desires and just kind of stuff them down and and pretend that they didn't exist. They're thinking, I know, He's, he's probably talking about what those philosophers talk about, of looking within yourself and finding your contentment within your own heart and within your own strength. And... Paul rejects them on both counts. He he surfaces a word that they would think would be familiar, and he turns it on its head and goes in a completely different direction. Because the scripture says that just burying our wants and desires and ignoring them, pretending that they don't exist, only pushes them down to be brought out and to explode in uh, bigger and, and more destructive ways down the road. And to just look within ourselves for somehow to find the contentment that we might find in our heart is, the scripture reveals, an empty pursuit. Because we don't have what it takes in ourselves and in our own hearts to find that contentment. And so Paul's going to take them in a different direction. In verse 12, Paul says, he's learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. It's something that he had to learn because, as Paul has revealed in other parts of Scripture, contentment was something that eluded him, was something he struggled with. In Romans chapter 7, Paul is brutally honest about some of his present as well as some of his past. And when he talks about his past, he talks about the Ten Commandments because he was the, the, the Jew of Jews, the faithful of the faithful. And he was really good with the Ten Commandments and most of the other commandments as well. Good at the ones that were about the externals. One to nine, he kind of knocked out of the park. But he got to number 10 where it said, do not covet. And he realized, well, wait a second. It seems to be requiring that I don't just keep the rules. It seems to be calling me to a, a contentment and a peace on the inside. It seems to be saying that, that if I want and seek and desire something that I don't have, I want, I want what my neighbor's got. I want, I want a car like that. And I want, I want a wife like that or a husband like that or a dog like that. I don't know what it is. But it, when we begin to covet what we don't have, the Bible calls that sin. And it's in the Ten Commandments because it's not kind of a little thing to God. It's a big deal to God that that coveting and seeking and living with a hunger for what we don't have and refusing to be content with what we do have is at the heart of God's will. It it touches on something that is deeply important. And, and so, Paul recognized that, and it, and it kind of undid him. It, it broke him apart, and recognizing his, his faith and his religion was kind of just all on the outside. It hadn't reached to his heart. Paul came to faith in Jesus Christ, and it began to change him in some profound ways. But one of the ways it changed him was to begin to transform some of the inside. Paul had... A unique, unique story in some ways because he, he suffered more than most people have ever suffered. But as a believer, what Paul began to do was to recognize, I think that Jesus can bring me peace in the midst of even terrible circumstances. And so what he did, when, when he was faced with difficulty, he began to test his faith He began to test God and to to lean in to his trials and call upon God and seek the faithfulness of God and seek the peace that Jesus promises. He had that conviction that even in the midst of difficulty, he could find rest in his heart because of what God had accomplished. Paul had learned something about this contentment in Christ when he was first jailed in Philippi in an earlier visit. Paul and Silas had been slandered. Uh, They had been falsely accused. And the people who falsely accused him actually stirred up sentiment against Paul and Silas. So then he found himself in the middle of a riot. Crowd is attacking him. Then the city magistrates come in and the magistrates assume that Paul and Silas are guilty. They have them stripped in front of the crowd to humiliate them. Then they are beaten with rods. And we can only imagine the, the pain of that. Then having been stripped and beaten with rods, they are thrown into prison. And it says that their feet are fastened with shackles. You're in that situation. And you decide, so what am I going to do? Do I believe the life lie that contentment comes when this kind of stuff doesn't happen? Peace could be mine if I lived in a world where circumstances were so much more peaceful. Or do I have the faith in the living God to believe even in this, God could give me a peace and a contentment? Paul chose to believe He chose to seek the face of God, to seek the strength and empowering of Jesus Christ to live in fullness and contentment, rest in his heart because of Jesus. And Acts 16.25 gives us a picture of the result. It says, About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And we're reading that thing, and I'll bet the prisoners were listening to them, right? Like, it, they must have thought these guys are completely nuts. How on earth do you sing when you're facing this? How do you sing to how do you sing to a God who would allow that to you? Allow that to happen to you? Why aren't they scowling and 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 undone? Why how can they sing like this? But it says they listen. And as they listened to those songs, they would hear, they seemed to be singing to a God who is alive and a God who is with them. They seemed to be singing to a God of grace who who made peace with them through his own son. son. They sang songs of a, a prince of peace, a God who brings peace in the heart regardless of circumstance. And I'm sure that a few among those prisoners listened to those songs and could only stand back in awe. Could there really be such a God? Could there really be someone who could accomplish that in my life too? This is a kind of contentment, the kind of joy in great difficulty that the Bible says is available for you and is available for me. And that's exactly what Paul's talking about in Philippians 4.13. The verse says, and you know it, you've heard the verse, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I've seen it on t-shirts, I've seen it on coffee mugs, I've seen it misquoted, I've seen it mistaught. But we've all heard the verse. It doesn't mean, and we have to remind ourselves it doesn't mean that because you became a Christian, you can do backflips now. It doesn't mean that you can, you can do quantum physics any, any more than you could before. It, it doesn't mean that you can achieve world peace. It, it doesn't mean all things, in, all things that might pop into your mind. The whole passage and the whole development of the letter has been talking about a, a man who is in chains... And who has found joy in the midst of those chains. And he comes to verse 13, and it doesn't all of a sudden mean something that he's never been talking about. The verse means that no matter what you find yourself, whether it is in in want, whether it is with much, whether it is with little, because of Christ, you can know his peace. Because of Jesus Christ and his empowering, you can know contentment in the midst of that very circumstance you find yourself in. He's saying that Christ makes contentment possible. The, boi- the point is, Jesus is the one who makes us content whether we have little, whether we have much. He's the one who makes prisoners sing. So where does that all- leave us all? The secret of contentment is not just to ignore your desires and pretend they don't exist. The secret of contentment isn't just that you can ask Jesus for more stuff and then you'll be happy. That's a lie. The secret of contentment is that Jesus can satisfy your desires regardless of your circumstances. That he is the one who fills us. That when we seek his face, we can know his peace. We seek that contentment. When we see the life lie when it comes in, when we say it, when we repeat it in our head, when we see in our we see it in our circumstances in our lives, and we are tempted to believe it, when we see that life lie and reject it. And we put it up against Scripture, it's that just not true. I refuse to believe that. I refuse that I to believe that I need to change my circumstances in order to find some measure of rest and joy in my heart. And having rejected that life lie, by faith, we seek the peace of God. By prayer, we seek the presence of God and the help that only He can give. It it doesn't mean ignoring it. It doesn't mean sucking it up and trying harder. It doesn't mean resting in your self-sufficiency. It means by prayer and faith, going to God and seeking the peace that he promises can be yours. I feel like this is a lesson God has been teaching me from the day I became a believer. Because when I became a believer... I was stupid. I'm still stupid in many ways, but I was—I was more stupid then. And I, in my stupidness, I just assumed I'm a Christian now. God will make everything go my way. Uh, all my circumstances should work out now. I'm—I'm I'm on God's. I'm kind of on God's program. And instead, what I found was that I faced arguments and opposition and conflict and difficulty and unemployment, and then. Employment with more stress than I thought I could handle. And and just one thing after another, not going my way, not going the direction that I thought it was. And yet in the midst of that, I had the conviction and I had developed the conviction that somehow God was still with me in that. Somehow God could still do things in that that he couldn't do without him even when things were going right. And he taught me through that that there is a peace to lay hold of. There is a contentment that can be mine when I seek the face of God and when I put my trust in a Savior who loves me. The problem is, the life lies just keep coming. The problem is, they just keep coming in different forms, in different ways, new circumstances, new lies and i'm still tempted to believe them you're still tempted to believe them and the call of the scripture this morning is to see them when they come in the front door and to reject them to put them aside to call upon the grace of god to seek the face of god with a conviction and the belief my happiness is not in more my happiness is not in different circumstances my Contentment can come now, here, because God is with me. Because Jesus Christ has redeemed me. And because he's the Prince of Peace, I can know peace in him. Let's seek him together in prayer as we call upon his name. Heavenly Father, we we first of all pray for eyes. Give us eyes to see the lies that would rob our joy. Give us the courage to reject them, to see them as lies, to treat them as lies, and not to hold on to them or base our lives on them. Help us to be content with little and stop thinking that more will solve our problems. Help us to be grateful for what we have Help us to be generous with what we have. Father, keep us from the love of money and help us instead to set our love on the Savior who died for us, the one who is faithful, trustworthy, and true. Help us to find our fullness in him, to seek his face until we experience the rest that only he can give. For we ask you in Jesus' name.